Matthew chapter 23, and we'll start at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, our subject this morning is the judgment that Jesus will exercise. From the child in the playground, that's not fair, to the sports fan on the couch, oi ref, to Elon Musk and his thermonuclear lawsuit, all of us believe in judgment. This Sunday is traditionally known as Advent Sunday. It's not our usual pattern to follow the church calendar closely, though the number of Christmas trees in evidence in our buildings might deny that. But rightly understood, Advent celebrates not chocolates and Haribos in daily windows opened eagerly at breakfast each morning, nor even first and foremost the early in the early weeks the first coming of Jesus, but rather Advent is about the second coming of Jesus as Lord and Judge. And one of the benefits of working through books of the Bible systematically is you simply can't avoid the next piece, which one might otherwise skip over. And the series, Matthew chapter 19 through 23, which began by Jesus teaching that God believes in divorce and will divorce his people, ends with this declaration of judgment by Jesus on Jerusalem. We're actually going to spend the bulk of our time in the final three verses, verses 37 through 39. And here Jesus heralds his coming judgment on Jerusalem and on all people. Two preliminary observations. First, the seriousness of what Jesus is announcing. You can't have failed to notice the seven woes. Seven is a significant number in the Bible. It symbolizes completeness. The case has been examined. The jury is unanimous. The verdict has been reached. The judge dons his black cap. This is it. Judgment. And the other preliminary is the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. He is speaking about first century Jerusalem. This is the historic city with the temple of God, where God has focused all his dealings with humanity, the place of God's 
presence, of God's pardon, and of God's praise. He's not singling out here 21st century Jerusalem. This has nothing to do with Gaza or with Israel today, except in the sense that it has to do with all of humanity, which we'll come to at the end. But with Jesus declaring his judgment, God's judgment on Jerusalem, and with Jesus taking his position as judge, Jesus now replaces Jerusalem and Israel and everything that it represents. So from the last three verses, four simple points. One, Jesus judges Jerusalem if I put this in inverted commas, with tears in his eyes. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? Second, Jesus judges deservedly, but you would not. Third, Jesus judges Jerusalem by removing himself from her and leaving her without hope. Your house is left to you desolate. Finally, Jesus will return to exercise just judgment on all humanity. Now, I say tears because in Luke 19, we read that Jesus, drawing near to Jerusalem, wept over her. And I think from the image of the hen gathering the chicks, we get that sense, how often I would have. There's no sense of gleeful vengeance, simply tearful sorrow. In the Bible, God repeatedly exercises patience. We find God waiting far, far longer than ever we would have waited It's almost as if God gives his people and those whom he has to judge one chance after another chance, after another chance, after another chance. It's almost as if God is endlessly patient. He tells the prophet Ezekiel, God does not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he might turn from his evil way and repent. We read in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But ultimately, God's patience does run out. His patience is almost endless, but not absolutely endless. And ultimately, justice must be done, and ultimately, judgment must fall, and ultimately, the verdict must be pronounced, and ultimately, the sentence delivered. And the image of verse 37 is so powerful speaks of God's patience, God's kindness, God's heart, God's pathos, you could even say. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? I don't know when last we witnessed a mother hen gathering her brood 
Chickens are remarkably stupid. Chicks even more so. They can think of a thousand ways to die that you and I would not even have invented. And the mother hen gathers them protectively. How often I would have done it. This is not cheerful. This is tearful. Consider God's patient forbearance. In Genesis 15, he wakes four centuries for the fullness of the wickedness of the nations that he comes to judge. In Exodus 32, Mount Carmel with the golden calf, he doesn't deliver Israel over to the judgment she deserves. In the book of Judges, again and again and again, he relents. When David numbered Israel, God relented from his judgment. God is patient. It's possible to be lured into a sense of presumptuous assurance by the patient forbearance of God. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Jesus judges with tears in his eyes. Jesus judges deservedly, and here we focus on the four words at the end of verse 27, and you would not. And Israel And Jerusalem trusted in her own skin-thin, papered-over performance, even as Israel rejected God's grace-filled mercy offered in and through Jesus Christ. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and you would not. As a whole, chapter 23 is an exploration of the Pharisees' skin-thin performance coupled with an expose of their willful rejection of Jesus. Externalism is the name of the game when it comes to the Pharisees' religion. And the seven woes which come in three pairs plus one find Jesus prosecuting the Pharisees and Jerusalem for her man-made religion. The Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. They have the law, but they have failed altogether to understand the point and purpose of the law. The first pair of woes, you can see them in verses 13 through 15. And the Pharisees' religion is what you might call cul-de-sac religion, that is hell-bent. It's cul-de-sac because it's Christless. They do everything they can to prevent people turning to Jesus. And therefore, they are shutting the kingdom of God in people's faces. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter 
to go in. And that's what the Pharisees have been doing ever since the onset of Jesus' public ministry. It's what establishment religions always do and have done ever since. And in verses 15 and 16, they travel the world seeking to promote their own philosophy. But because their religion refuses to recognize Jesus as king, it is hell-bound. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a, a, a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. This analysis could be directed at any proselytizing ideology. Humanism, secularism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism, progressivism, anything that seeks to promote its own form of self-righteous ethic but refuses to recognize Jesus. Come and join us. We are the righteous ones, but with no possibility of forgiveness from God. The second two woes come in verses 16 through 24. Blind religion... Foolish, Jesus' words, moronic, verse 17. You blind morons. That is gnat picking and camel swallowing. Verse 24. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I love Jesus' turn of phrase. Because it will not seek the true meaning, the genuine pursuit of God's word and of God himself, Pharisaical religion tangles itself in a litigious web of legal minutiae, loophole religion, you might call it, developing any number of get-out clauses rather than taking seriously God's demand for absolute integrity. And Jesus identifies the convoluted contracts that their legal system has developed and examines their charitable acts. Verse 16, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, they say, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he's bound by his word. And so the contracts they develop with all loopholes and subclauses are evidence of the fundamental failure of integrity that lies at the very heart of the whole culture. Developing different forms of wording to indicate different types of truth. Saying, my word is my bond, in utmost good faith, but with armies of lawyers and pages of detailed small print belying the profound deceitfulness at the heart of the culture, institutionalized untrustworthiness. Just five minutes' walk from here, there's a law firm that has recently taken on 18 newly qualified lawyers. The cost of a newly qualified lawyer today in the city is £125,000 a year. Don't let's kid ourselves that the city is a place of integrity. 
the only reason a culture needs 18 newly qualified lawyers a year at the cost of £125,000 each is because it is profoundly dishonest. Which is where a culture ends up if it abandons God's word and the substance of the word, that there is an eternal God who demands integrity. And they give of their mint and dill and cumin. They make a big show of what they give with entire personal strategies set aside to promote the public image, indicating how socially responsible they are. But true justice and mercy and faithfulness is miles away from the boardroom. And so verses 13 through 15, the first pair, cul-de-sac religion that is hell-bound, shutting off access to Jesus, promoting itself rather than Jesus, and blind, or in Jesus' word, moronic religion that trusts in its own system of self-righteousness rather than turning to Jesus, gnat-picking and therefore camel-swallowing religion, focusing on the externalism of public image rather than the heavyweight issues of truth and integrity and righteousness and mercy. And the third pair of woes, verses 25 through 27, paper-thin, death-trap religion. The last pair have to do with the outside and the inside, the veneer and the reality, the image and the substance. Verse 25 You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 28, outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And the washing laws of the Pharisees were legendary. We read about them in the Gospels. Wash the cup, the bowl, the seat, the couch even on which you recline to ensure that you don't make yourself unclean and impure. But what's going on in the heart? Greed and self-indulgence. No amount of polish can cover over a cabinet riddled with woodworm. What comes out of the mouth, says Jesus, comes out of the heart. And out of the heart come all of these things, evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness. These are what defile a person Washing a pot or a seat or a pan does nothing to affect the cleanliness of the human soul. Some of us know Richard Borgonon, a great advocate of the Lord Jesus. He's an ex-broker in Lloyd's. And he says that every single Lloyd's broker has... A, a, a folder, much, his is much, much bigger than this, the one he holds up. And it is a folder designed to show what a good person I am. And it's full of pro bono work and helping a London child and trusteeships and so forth. What a good man I am. And it's signed, he says, by the broker's mother. What a good bloke. But every broker in the city has a mouth. 
and out of the mouth comes what's in the heart. And no amount of external polish can deal with internal filth, which comes out in evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and false witness. And contact with the dead body in Jewish law made a person unclean, and tombs potentially were sources of ritual uncleanness, and at festival times they were painted white, both to make sure they were beautified and to ensure that people didn't come into contact with them, but inside there were dead bones, and therefore contaminated. And so says Jesus, you are like whitewashed tombs, you Pharisees, outwardly appearing beautiful, but within full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I think it's the final woe, together with the first two, that indicates the deserved judgment of Jesus on Jerusalem. Murderous religion that will do absolutely anything to avoid Jesus, even banning Jesus' spokesmen and women, ejecting them from the church, whilst at the same time making a show of biblical evangelical credentials. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You build the tombs of the prophets. You decorate the monuments of the righteous from of old, saying, if we've lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of God's prophets. And thus you are witnesses against yourselves that your sons of those who murdered the prophets fill up then the measure of your fathers. So the establishment hold a 350-year anniversary service in St. Paul's Cathedral as a celebration of Thomas Cranmer and his prayer book, whose words and liturgical form lie behind every part of Western culture. They hold civic services and parade in all their pomp and ceremony. And even as the establishment is celebrating Thomas Cranmer, the establishment is plotting a form of revision to the rules of the church, which indicate it has no intention whatsoever of taking seriously the truth that Thomas Cranmer held dear. And in three years' time, the establishment will hold a 500-year anniversary in celebration of William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, which lies behind so much of the literature that we hold dear. You can't understand Shakespeare if you don't understand the Bible. And even as the establishment parades with its great celebration of Tyndale's Bible, so the establishment would be plotting the overthrow of any who teach the words that we find in that Bible. And Jesus can see straight through all of this I thought of calling it painted lady religion. You know, think of Tess in Hardy's Tess of the Devils. Think of Dickens's uh, Lady Habersham, painted lady religion. 
It's cul-de-sac and it's hell-bound, the first two woes, because it blocks people from coming to Jesus. It's blind and it's moronic, gnat-picking, camel-swallowing, because it ignores the substance of God's word in the law, but focuses on all sorts of virtue-signaling minutiae. It's papered over death trap religion because it polishes the external, but still out of the heart, keeps churning all this filth. And ultimately, it's murderous and hell-bent. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some will flog you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And Jerusalem's refusal to recognize Jesus and Jerusalem's crucifixion and rejection of the messengers of Jesus and Jerusalem's shunning of the followers of Jesus brings down her judgment at the end. Jesus judged Jerusalem tearfully, deservedly. Jesus judges Jerusalem by removing himself and therefore any possible hope of forgiveness Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again. The house is the temple. God's temple is the place where God dwelt. This is the place of God's presence, God's pardon, God's praise. The little word for there is extraordinary. To declare the temple of God in Jerusalem desolate on account of himself leaving it. Why, it's the most extraordinary claim to divinity on the part of Jesus. And from this point on, Jerusalem, the city on earth, 31.8 degrees north, 31.2 degrees east, ceases to have any spiritual significance whatsoever in God's dealing with man, other than as a symbol of God's judgment on all man-made religion that rejects Jesus. For all its veneer and its hypocrisy and its refusal to deal with the filth of the human heart and its rejection of Jesus and of the forgiveness and the heart change that Jesus brings. From this point on in the history of humanity, Jerusalem becomes completely insignificant except as an example of hell-bent religion that rejects Jesus and pretends righteousness and virtue signals and cancels and puffs up self and refuses to follow Christ. In 70 AD, under General 
Titus, the emperor Vespasian, ordered the invasion of Jerusalem. The description of the overthrow of Jerusalem makes for post-watershed reading. It remains one of the most gruesome genocides of all history. Men pursued women and children into the sewers and lanced them with spears like pieces of meat on a kebab. You can read about it in Josephus's Hundred Year History. None escaped alive. The streets ran with rivers of blood. And so Jesus' judgment on Jerusalem came to pass, and from this point on, Jerusalem ceases to have any spiritual significance other than as a symbol of God's determination to judge human pretense and human religion. Finally, Jesus will judge at his return. Look closely at verse 39. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We might argue that this, verse 39, is suggesting at his resurrection, Jerusalem will see Jesus risen from the grave and ultimately enthroned in heaven. But the people of Jerusalem do not witness this. The resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus is witnessed by the disciples, but not by the people of Jerusalem. And so this third quotation from Psalm 118 that we've had in our section points forward to the return of Jesus, the stone whom the builders rejected has become the capstone, the headstone. And from this point on, following his death and resurrection and his enthronement enthronement at the right hand of God, Jesus now waits his return when he will come in final judgment and summon every man, woman, and child to meet him. Our subject is judgment. Advent is our theme. Jesus will return. He sees through the thin veneer of all paper-thin religion. By rejecting Jesus, Jerusalem sealed her fate. She was judged then, and she will be judged at the return of Jesus. Christless, wordless religion is cul-de-sac religion that is hell-bent. Christless, wordless religion is blind religion that ends up gnat-picking, camel-swallowing. Christless, wordless religion is death-trap religion, papered over religion, making a great show of external virtue, but with filth coming out of the heart. And Christless, wordless religion becomes murderous religion that will have nothing to do with the only source of salvation, 
the Lord Jesus himself. And the gospel finishes with the announcement that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And Jesus insists that all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son. And the apostles teach us that God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, and he's given assurance of that by raising Jesus from the dead. And we're told in the Scriptures that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing vengeance to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will face punishment and eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified by his saints. It's not our normal practice to follow the church calendar. You might not guess that from the number of trees, the veritable small forest that has appeared in the St. Helens buildings. But Advent is first and foremost about the coming judgment that the Lord Jesus will bring. We should be warned. He judges tearfully through tear-stained eyes. He longs that we turn to him in repentance and faith. We should be warned. He judges Deservedly, he can see straight through man-made religion. His judgment is a judgment of utter desolation. He removes himself completely. This might be, for some of us, the last ever opportunity we have to hear of the possibility of forgiveness from the Lord Jesus. We will face Jesus as judge at the last. Let's pray together. As we remember the first coming of the Lord Jesus, our Father, please keep in our minds his return. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.